Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, I'm finally getting out into the wide world for the first time in a while, which feels pretty good, even if it is for a business trip. I won't bore you with those details, other than to say I've got the opportunity to spend some of that time at one of the destinations we covered a few months back in our dark travels, the Banff Springs Hotel. And, in between meetings and presentations, I fully intend to spend some time wandering the grounds in search of a few of our ghostly friends, and maybe even that missing room. Sounds like a fun way to spend a week to me. That all said, I'm going to keep things brief this evening. Submissions. We're open, and we want the darkest, most hackle-raising, pulse-pounding, blood-curdling tales you've got, under 10,000 words. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions has all the details you need to know. Do your worst. I dare you. And that's it. That's all the news I've got this week. So, without further ado, let's dive into our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Eric Fomley. Eric Fomley's stories have appeared in Daily Science Fiction, Flame Tree, and Inferno, Volume 6, Tales from the Worlds of Warhammer. You can read more of his stories on his website, ericfomley.com, or follow him on Twitter at Prince Grimdark. Links are in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Eric Fomley's a Bag Full of Soldiers, a Tales to Terrify original.
the battleships in the clouds above me monitor my every move. I crunch along the sheets of endless ice to reach my fallen brothers. The icy wind of Giddy Prime howl as they blow through the glaciers and try to hold me back. I see the soldier before I'm standing on the green waypoint in my frosty visor. His body lays at odd angles, his armor shredded from gunfire, face locked in a permanent scream. Blood oozes from his wounds. His head is still intact. I kneel alongside him and retrieve my drill and micro-saw from one of my suit's pockets. Particles of bone and bloody flesh fleck my visor as I drill three holes in a triangle on the frontal lobe of the soldier's skull. I use the micro-saw to connect the holes and gently pry the triangle of bone free. Blood and fluid pool and leak from the wound, but I can see the silver microchip clamped to the soldier's brain like a spider. I slide the blade of the micro-saw underneath and pull the chip free. I use my free hand to put my tools away and retrieve the cloth bag tied to my belt. I drop the chip into the bag with the others. Organic bodies are cheap to manufacture. The tiny infrastructure that housed a human mind, less so. This soldier and the others I've collected will live. They'll be given new bodies and sent to the front lines to fight again. As long as the chip is collected, They'll never die. I stand, look down at the soldier, and think of our plight, our seemingly eternal service to the Dominion. What life did this one leave behind before they took him? I feel the shock at the base of my brain. It's light, a warning, but it rocks my body with a moment of sharp pain as every nerve in my body prickles simultaneously. The Dominion is waiting. I'm taking too long. I move towards the last waypoint on my visor. The crystal ice shatters and cracks beneath my boots. The small generator in the back of my environmental suit whines as its power core struggles to keep up with the demanding climate, struggles to keep my organs warm and filter the frigid air through my mask at a breathable temperature. How I wish I could take the suit off and let the elements take me. How long would I enjoy death until I was recovered? The Dominion fights a war of planets, a tireless fight to own them all. But whatever the strategic or monetary value of this ice rock is, I'll never know. But for them, it's enough to lose lives. The crimson pooling out of my brothers paints the color of this colorless world. A soldier at the last waypoint is dead, his head blown apart, and with it the chip that held his mind. Command must see this through my visor cam because the waypoint clears from my heads-up display. Mission complete. I pick up my pace as I trudge back to my flyer with the bag of soldiers still in my hand. It will be night soon. The sky is the dark gray of Dominion battleships. At night, the hellish conditions on Giddy Prime worsen. My suit would never keep up. Just before I reach my flyer, I query the onboard AI assistant to fire up the engines and begin the pre-launch checklist. I order it to drop the boarding ramp. My foot catches the lip where the ramp meets the ground. I sprawl forward and catch myself with my free hand, but several of the chips spill out of the bag and bounce off the ramp onto the ice. It's a clumsy move, and command rewards my foolishness with a full shock. I collapse. I can't keep my teeth clamped as the pain ignites every nerve. Pinpricks like a million knives stabbing every part of my body all at once, and I'm alive to feel it. I convulse on the ramp and scream until I think my heart will stop. My skin twitches and spasms when the shock is gone. I can't wipe the spittle from my face or visor until I'm back on the ship and can remove my environmental suit. 
I roll onto my stomach and try to rise as quickly as I can before they decide to give me another. I set about recollecting the chips I dropped. Except for a few I pretend I don't see. It's not enough chips to justify them sending another collector. That would be too much of a waste of time and fuel. I'll be reprimanded, probably shocked again, and maybe more than once. But the unrecovered chips will be shut off. Those soldiers won't be used again, won't ever have to march to their deaths again. They're free from living like this. It's all I can wish as I board my flyer and launch it to meet the battleship up in the clouds that one day someone will do the same for me. That was Eric Fomley's A Bag Full of Soldiers, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as managing editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second tale tonight comes from Sean Patrick Hazlitt. Sean Patrick Hazlitt is an Army veteran, speculative fiction writer and editor, and finance executive in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's published 50 short stories and publications such as The Year's Best Military and Adventure SF, Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Terraform, Galaxy's Edge, Writers of the Future, Grimdark Magazine, Vastarian, and Abyss and Apex, among others. Sean is also the editor of the Weird World War III and Weird World War IV anthologies. He is an active member of the Horror Writers Association and Codex Writers Group. Listen with me, children of the night, to Sean Patrick Hazlitt's Mandible, a Tales to Terrify original. 
I hunkered down behind the charred ruin of an Elland armored car, its turret punctured with dozens of small holes. The rain came down in torrents, threatening to swell the Naya River to overflow. A blackened bridge beckoned to the west, connecting the only tarred road from Sela to Kabbalah. A bloated body bobbed in the Nile like a chunk of rotten meat in a boiling stew. I wondered who he was, which side he'd been on. The artifact, a late 16th century silver Portuguese crucifix, had led us to this spot and no doubt would take us even deeper into the Angolan abattoir. But the others didn't know that. They couldn't learn about it until much later into our expedition. For if they discovered my methods now, they might abandon me to my own madness. I lit a Balamar canal, pulling a deep drag to take the edge off. Nothing like a Russian cigarette to burn the hair out of your nostrils and cut your life short. The Lord knows I deserve to die after what I'd done in Nam. I thought the South Africans withdrew, I said to Sal, who crunched beside me and was studying an acetate-covered map. They did. He pointed at the Ellen's mangled cannon and shredded tires. These boys just hadn't gotten the memo yet. I exhaled, the smoke dissolving like sugar in the downpour, much like my own tenuous grasp on reality. So how much further, Mr. Ph.D.? I pulled out my compass. It was spinning wildly. Good. The crucifix's electromagnetic field wasn't tuned yet, and until we got closer to our final destination, no compass would work in the artifact's presence. And we've got a ways to go. About a hundred clicks. He rolled his eyes, and stood and threw his rucksack onto his back. Picking up the R1 rifle leaning against the armored car, he loaded a 7.62mm magazine and charged the weapon. Well... Let's go. A fixer's fixer. Sal had been in at least two dozen covert actions in every backwater shit heap you could possibly imagine. But this mission would stretch even his considerable skills. It was high risk, but if we pulled it off, we could win the Cold War. And I could end my nightmares. Gomez hefted his ruck and M16 in sympathy and hiked toward the bridge. A Vietnam vet, he was even crazier than Sal. Gomez had traded his life as a lurk patrolling deep behind enemy lines in Cambodia for an even more uncertain and ambiguous existence as an agency operative. My boots squished with every step. I hated the rain. I had hoped Angola's semi-arid climate would be a vacation from the jungle rot of Nam, but I could never seem to escape it. Not even in Africa. Like the chains in my dreams, rainstorms stalked me. The bridge was a makeshift structure built with local bluegum logs, blackened and chipped by gunfire. And as we crossed it, I kept my head on a swivel. The locals back at the last crawl had spoken of an intense and week-long firefight for this bridge. Unmarked vehicles bearing white men had attacked from the south. Their uniforms had been stripped of full insignia. I just snickered. Who the hell did the South Africans think they were fooling? Once we reached the far side of the river, we wandered past the grim detritus of war. Charred and twisted husks of Russian trucks and towed ZPU anti-aircraft guns, and the abandoned equipment of the Cubans and MPLA troops who'd opposed the river crossing. We headed northward, past the abandoned and mangled wreckage of BM-21 grad truck-mounted multiple rocket launchers. The Afrikaners called them Royu, or Red Eye, because of the rocket's red glare. <laughs> I'm sure Francis Scott Key would have approved. See, war is at once the same and different everywhere. Each war death is unique in its ghastliness, but the stench of death never wavers. I swallowed my daily malaria pill and took another drag on my cigarette, a nervous tick I'd acquired to chase my inner demons before pushing forward and further into the unknown. It was late December 1975, Fidel Castro had sent thousands of Cuban troops into northwestern Angola to support the Marxist-Leninist MPLA in a bid to extend its control over northern Angola. The Cubans had all but wiped out the U.S.-backed FNLA rebels, so the brain buckets back at Langley were desperate to do something. But the Vietnam debacle had made an open commitment of U.S. forces in Africa all but untenable. It just so happens my research gave them an excuse to send another team in-country an asset that could still influence the outcome of the Angolan Civil War. 
It was unlikely one small team could make a difference, but I'd use whatever excuse I had to continue my experiments. My ambitions went far beyond checking Soviet expansion in southwestern Africa. If we succeeded, we'd never need to worry about the Soviet Union again. As we marched north, we reached the smoldering carcass of an abandoned crawl. The village's ring of beehive-like structures was utterly devoid of life. Over the past few days, the weather had remained stubbornly persistent, shrouding the sun behind engorged and melancholy nimbus clouds with virtually infinite bladders. The mud here crept into everything, chafing our inner thighs and infesting the tiny spaces between our nails and fingers. It was as if the earth were anxious to fill its sacred soil with new denizens. From war, to famine, to pestilence, everything in Africa conspired to kill. You sure we're headed in the right direction? Sal asked. Nodding, I said, I'm sure. I'll show you. I took a deep drag on a cigarette before pulling out the 16th century crucifix from my rucksack and placing it on the muddy ground. I positioned its long end toward the north, then waited. The fuck are you doing? Sal grumbled. I'd never shown him or Gomez how I'd been plotting our daily routes into the African bush. And to them, these jaunts must have seemed haphazard. And even the best agency operatives could only tolerate random treks for so long before turning on their guides. So I decided now was the time to share my method with them, no matter how insane it was. The three of us waited as rainwater dripped down our faces and into stagnant pools that pockmarked the soggy dirt road and swirled with mosquitoes. After what seemed like an eternity, the crucifix began to vibrate, emitting an eerie whistle hum. An unseen three-dimensional field seemed to emanate from the artifact, blocking the wind and rain. Sal's lips were moving, but his voice failed to escape his mouth. Gomez yelled, but the power of the crucifix nullified his protest. The artifact started to spin like a pinwheel. Gomez stumbled backward. The crucifix rounded in circles until it abruptly stopped, its long edge pointed in the direction I feared it would. Toward the crawl. The rain and wind flooded back into the vacuum. Saul and Gomez's delayed and disembodied words rushed into the vortex as if spoken by specters. Gomez's eyes widened. Sal reached down and grabbed the crucifix, examining it. What the hell kind of mission you sign us up for, Doc? I snatched the cross from Sal, then jerked my head toward the crawl. Let's move. Gomez and Sal followed me towards a ripening stench of death. I was the first to see the heads impaled on the crawl's outer palisades. Rotten and jawless, the skulls had holes bored into them and extending from these pits were curved impala horns. Oddly, the sunken eyes of the Mbundu inhabitants had been unspoiled by local scavengers, eyes that seemed to observe and measure me as if they knew my secret. Sal gawked at the grisly display. What kind of twisted evil shit is this? I ignored his question. Like all things along the path to enlightenment, the desecration here was a sign. A message from the ether tailored for me and me alone. But it wasn't until I reached the crawl center that the significance of this divine communion became clear. Spread amid a riot of fitted brown puddles were the missing jawbones of the crawl's defiled residents, arranged in a precisely spaced Fibonacci spiral. The force manipulating the crucifix had sent me a reminder of a dark memory, impossible for me to purge. Project Mandible. I nearly jumped when a hand gripped my shoulder from behind. Sal chuckled. This is some real fucked up shit here, dog. You gonna tell us where the hell you're leading us? If I told him, he'd never believe me. Instead, I just shook my head. Sorry, Sal, that's neat to know. He held up his hands in mock surrender. Ah, right, right, and I don't need to know. Exactly. Let's keep moving. I didn't ask Sal how he'd procured the four-wheeled, lightly-armored Soviet BRDM. Early on, I'd learned never to ask Sal questions. I had a pretty good idea how he'd acquired it, and if I were right, there'd be three Cuban infantry battalions converging on the area by nightfall. We'd been traveling through the bush for several days and had encountered no signs of human habitation. Yet deep down, I knew we were getting closer to my target.
I could feel it in my knees the way old-timers with arthritic joints can sense a storm coming. There was an aura about this area, an acute malevolence in the air, a force that would tolerate no further human encroachment. The storm clouds from the past few days had cleared, and the sun had since seared the hard scrabble landscape. Our BRDM rattled as we barreled down the dirt road, dust billowing in its wake. Gomez was behind the wheel, while Sal occupied the turret, manning the BRDM's 14.5mm heavy machine gun as if a firefight were imminent. The desolate golden savannas stretched for leagues in all directions. We were isolated and alone, subject to nature's sublime capriciousness. On the verge of cresting a ridge, Sal yelled, Stop! Gomez slammed on the brakes. Sal dropped down from the cupola, tapped my shoulder, and pointed to the ridgetop. Roadblock! He grabbed his binos and hopped out of the vehicle, crawling up just beneath the ridgeline. From there, he observed the valley below. Several minutes later, Sal returned to the BRDM and climbed in through one of the roof hatches. He regarded me with that dead predatory stare, the stare of a man who has done so much killing it no longer mattered, and said, I've got some good news and some bad news. Whenever Saul said that, it meant bad and worse news. Hey, what's the bad news? Beyond that ridge, there's an MPLA roadblock. And the good news? He grinned, but his eyes didn't. Well, since we're driving a BRDM, they'll think we're friendlies until we open fire. Before I could protest, Gomez slammed his foot on the gas pedal, crested the ridge, and dove into the valley. As the BRDM rumbled down the dusty road, Sal hopped into the cupola, turning the 14.5mm heavy machine gun perpendicular to our direction of travel, signaling we were friendlies to the soldiers ahead. An eight-wheeled Soviet BTR-60 armored personal carrier blocked the center of the road. Its flank faced us. Ten men armed with AK-47 sat smoking cigarettes with their legs draped over the BTR side. Belts of 7.62mm ammunition were coiled around their torsos. When we were within a hundred meters, one Angolan held up his hand, ordering us to halt. And so we did. But then, Saul rotated the turret to the right and ripped through the men's ranks with his machine gun like a farmer scything wheat. And before the Angolans could react, the BTR was spattered with blood, brains, and bone bits in a macabre modern art masterpiece. Gomez edged the BRDM forward until he reached the BTR. Sal hopped off the vehicle and calmly dispatched all ten soldiers with point-blank shots to the head. There was no playing possum with Sal. I figured now was as good a time as any for a smoke. Gomez and I got out of the BRDM to assess the damage. Sal pulled out his binos and surveyed the valley ahead. He lowered them, shook his head, and gave a thumbs up. Two shots rang out. It all happened so fast. One moment I was taking a drag, the next, Gomez had crumpled into a heap. I dropped my stomach and crawled towards the BRDM for cover. Sal had taken refuge behind the stack of dead soldiers and returned fire, aiming at a target I couldn't see. Another bullet zipped by, pinging the BRDM with a metallic ring. I hugged the ground, curling into as small a target as possible. Sal was quiet, almost too quiet, had he been hit. I low-crawled under the BRDM, then tried to get a better view of our attacker. Another burst of gunfire pinged the BRDM's armor. Gomez groaned in pain. I watched helplessly as he lay exposed out in the open. Two successive rifle shots followed. Come on! Sal shouted. I got the bastard! I got up from beneath the BRDM and took stock of the situation. An MPLA gunman's bloody body lay broken in the ground about a hundred meters from our position. You think there's any more of them lurking about? I asked. Sal shook his head. If they had been, they'd have shown up by now. He stooped over Gomez, who was clutching his stomach. I rushed over to our driver and ripped open his shirt. Ah, I'm fucked, he said. No, no, you're gonna be fine. Don't bullshit me, Doc, Gomez said faintly. It's a gut shot. I've seen enough in Nam to know my chances. Sal pressed the point of his rifle against Gomez's forehead. I pushed it away. Don't do it. Not yet. Shouldn't Gomez get to choose, said Sal, facing the wounded man. Not yet, Gomez said, wheezing. I need to write one last letter to Carmelita. Sal nodded and walked away. He busied himself by stripping the still-smoking bodies of anything useful. It was a gruesome business, but a necessary one, especially all the way out here in the African bush, miles from civilization.
I dressed Gomez's wound inside the BRDM as best I could, then gave him some morphine to lessen the pain. Sal took the wheel, driving onward past wildebeests, elephants, zebras, cape buffalo, and antelope, while I wrote Gomez's final letter to his wife. We drove and drove until the vibrating BRDM made her bones sore. There are some places in this world that aren't meant for people. Lonely spaces, where the air chokes and burns the soul. Where the night comes early like a sweeping veil of darkness, shrouding things better left unseen. Where an oppressive and suffocating spirit hangs over everything. A menacing presence that was there long before humans emerged from the primordial muck, and that would remain long after the descendants of mankind had been rendered unto dust. By twilight, we were within visual range of our objective, a solitary Portuguese church at the dirt road's terminus. And as we drew closer, I felt queasy and experienced a profound sense of unease. Gomez had been unconscious for most of the ride, but somehow still had a weak pulse. It was unnatural. He should have been dead by now. Sal stopped the BRDM. What the fuck is up with that place? It feels wrong. He faced me. This the place you're looking for? I placed my hand on the crucifix, feeling its heat, and nodded grimly. The church couldn't have been more than 200 meters away, but I had a nearly overpowering urge to flee from it. It was now full dark. I could hear a barely perceptible chorus of whispers in some strange guttural tongue. I couldn't quite place it. I didn't want to place it. Gomez sat up and stared at me. His eyes were bloodshot and empty. He smiled knowingly. I can see their chains. They belong to you. He fell back and stopped breathing. I shuddered. Gomez's words had meaning, but I didn't know how to interpret them. Whatever had drawn me here was sending me another message. Sal reached back and checked Gomez's pulse. After a tense minute, Sal glanced up at me and shook his head. He's gone. A myriad of eyes glowed in the darkness. Low to the ground, they likely belonged to nocturnal predators like lions or hyenas. But unlike lions and hyenas, they hadn't ignored us or left the area. Instead, they watched us in a manner that was both menacing and unnerving, and seemingly born out of a deep and sinister intelligence. Let's return in the morning, I said. This place isn't safe at night. I'd expected Sal to retort with something practical, like the Cubans would be here soon, so we needed to get intel back to Langley before it was too late. But to my surprise, he didn't. He just turned the BRDM around and drove until we found a small depression about three clicks away, where the malign influence of that place had tapered off. We set up a logger site and buried Gomez. Then we slept fitfully with dreams of violence and slaughter. Choppers! We rushed to grab our gear. The steady hum of rotary blades indicated that Soviet-armored gunships were circling nearby. Sal lifted his binos, pointed them in the sound's direction. The sun had barely crested the eastern horizon when Sal shouted, Heinz! We scrambled into position, scanning the sky for Russian helicopters. Fuck! Sal yelled, his eyes glued to the binos. They aren't coming for us! They're heading for the church! I calmed down for a moment, until a more terrifying realization occurred to me. If Heinz were in the area because of the church and not us, and if they were aware of the anomaly, then they were also aware of the gateway. Shit, Sal said. What's wrong? The Heinz are gone. What do you mean gone? Vanished. I said, as in you've lost sight of them. No, one minute they were flying toward that church, the next they disappeared. Entirely. Surely it had to have been some trick of the light, but anyone who had heard the sound of the engines abruptly stop would have argued otherwise. The helicopters were, indeed, gone. I glanced at Sal. What are we supposed to do now? My question was a ruse. I knew exactly what we needed to do. I couldn't leave Africa until I got close enough to stare into the abyss, and ultimately, to fully understand how to pierce the membrane between worlds. Observe and report, he replied. I knew from experience that Sal was worried, but still he remained as cool as a popsicle. The truth was we were now in uncharted territory. 
We couldn't exactly radio the station in Kinshasa because we'd run the risk of exposing ourselves to Soviet intelligence. Compounding that, there was a high likelihood that Cuban and even Soviet forces would be swarming the area once they figured out their Heinz had gone missing. We had to do something quick, so I pulled out a map and shared it with Saul, drawing a point in the church's coordinates. Where did you see the Heinz disappear? I said. He stared intently at the map, took my grease pencil and drew two X's. Okay, at what elevation? He scratched his head. I don't know, 100 meters? I wrote down the numbers next to the X's. I had an idea. Sal, you wouldn't happen to have any projectiles like mortars in the back of the BRDM, would you? He shrugged. Nope. And even if I did, they'd make a ton of noise out there. Find another way to execute whatever crazy scheme you have before you start lobbing mortars at that church. I didn't have many options, but he was right. I'd rather not paint a big red target for the Soviets to find us. In the interim, I needed to come up with a more immediate solution to test my idea. Then, one dawned on me. Okay, how many white star clusters do we have left? I asked Sal, referring to projectile flares with parachutes attached. He looked at me like I had a penis sticking out of my forehead. All of them? I rubbed my hands together like a giddy schoolboy. <sighs> Excellent. After driving to within a click of the church, we spent an hour or so launching white star clusters towards it at various angles. I kept detailed notes on where and at what elevation the star clusters disappeared. Anything we launched at a 70% or higher angle cleared whatever invisible barrier surrounded the church. As we dialed in the coordinates, a pattern emerged. The star clusters vanished into a negative space described by a distinct toroidal shape. An invisible donut with a hole whose radius extended from the church. By dusk, I had mapped out what I had dubbed the Dead Space Donut. And once I was confident about my calculations, we returned to camp and away from a place that made me feel ill. As night descended... We each took a four-hour shift on watch. I awoke to frantic whispers. Doc, Sal said. Wake up. You gotta see this. I rubbed my eyes, got out of my sleeping bag, and quickly dressed. We crawled to the lip of the depression. He handed me his binos. In the distance, I observed the same low-lying sets of glowing eyes I had seen the prior night. Then, I witnessed something that made my heart race. Four men stood among the various beasts. Watching, waiting, men wearing red army uniforms. Christ, I said. The pilots? Sal nodded. As with the other beasts, the men's eyes glowed in the blackness. Why are they just standing there? I wondered aloud. Sal tapped me on the shoulder. Let's do a quick recon. He jutted his head toward the pilots. To minimize detection, Sal and I crept forward on foot. He carried a small camera. As we drew closer to the church, that sickening feeling became increasingly acute, making it harder and harder to press forward. And just when our advance became utterly unbearable, the things with the glowing eyes began to approach us. Sal fell to his knees and scrambled for his camera. He frantically snapped photos as the possessed men and beasts lurched toward us, without any apparent sense of fear or urgency. They advanced with a certain inevitability, animated by some strange and alien purpose. I turned to Sal, nearly choking on my own vomit. Where did you get that camera? All that crap about not knowing your mission. That was bullshit, wasn't it? Tell me why you're really here. I'm gathering intel, that's all, said Sal, unconvincingly. As the peculiar beings drew closer, my mind was suddenly beset by an onslaught of indescribably revolting images. Intense and horrific visions that made me want to claw my eyes out. Tell me why you're really here, I demanded. Fuck you. You tell me first. The man had a point. But I said nothing. Sal grabbed my shoulder. We should head back now. Fast. I stumbled backward and turned away from the church. Sal pointed the camera in my direction. Say cheese. He snapped a photo with the church looming ominously behind me. Why the hell did he do that? Sal definitely knew more than he was letting on. And the more I thought about it, the more it disturbed me. Disoriented, I hesitated, then ran. As I fled, I glanced over my shoulder and trembled at what I saw. Had we stood there a minute longer, the men and beasts would have reached us. Now, they had ended their pursuit and stood in place, seemingly no longer interested in our play. The instant we got back to our staging site, I slammed Saul up against the front of the BRDM. Tell me what you're doing here, you son of a bitch! Sal held his arms up in mock surrender, but said nothing. I pulled up my Beretta and pressed it against Sal's forehead. 
tell me what your mission is or I swear to Jesus I'll end you. Sal smiled. Eh, sorry, nice try. That's neat to know. His use of my own words against me only made me want to kill him more. I cocked back the Beretta's firing hammer. One more chance. Sal sneered. And what about your own little secrets, Doc? You know, tell me about Project Mandible. The words stabbed me in the heart and brought back a rush of unpleasant memories. In Vietnam, I'd managed a classified project to open a window to view a parallel universe. Not to interact with it, only observe it. We had reached a point where we needed human subjects to make further progress. Using captured Viet Cong guerrillas had been the only obvious solution. No one had questioned my methods, so we had gone on with the experiments. But I'd never expected any of the prisoners to be harmed. I'd never imagined the possibility that something from the other side would reach back through the gateway we'd opened. But whatever had, it had torn through the bodies of 171 Viet Cong prisoners of war by the time we'd been able to shut down our experiment. And I haven't forgiven myself since. Yet I was still optimistic we could find a way to open a gateway to new realms without further harm. Realms that would give us access to wonders beyond imagining. Wonders that would decisively end the Cold War in our favor. I ignored Sal's attempt at misdirection and pointed the pistol near his head. I pulled the trigger. Sal screamed as a bullet grazed his right ear. Tell me, I insisted. Fine, fine. It's related to your little pet project. We took the lessons we learned from Mandible to isolate certain places on the globe. These genius loci interested us because they seem to possess a sentient presence, a soul. That church stands as one of those coordinates. I yelled. I know all that! What is your specific part in all this? Fuck you, Sal said. True to form, he remained calm and unemotional. I took a deep breath, lowered my weapon, and started packing my gear. Let's get the hell out of here before this place is swarming with Russians and Cubans. Sal smiled. Good plan. I already have what I need. I refused to bite. What the hell was his mission? Taking a bunch of snapshots? Part of me hoped Sal got shot on the way back. We drove south along our planned exfiltration route to the South African border until sunrise and beyond. By nightfall, we were nearing our destination. Ah, soldiers! A platoon of Cubans had established a roadblock cutting us off from our route. Based on how they'd positioned behind the cover of their BTR-60, they'd been expecting us. In quick succession, the 12 7mm rounds of a Dushka machine gun zipped all around us. Sal drove the BRDM off the side of the road and into a gully masked by tall grass where we could fight from a defilade. He slammed on the brakes, scrambled up into the cupola, and returned fire with a heavy machine gun. I grabbed my M16, hopped out a hatch, and took a defensive position behind one of the BRDM's massive wheels. Outnumbering us, the Cubans maneuvered toward our position. One squad laid suppressive fire with the Dushka, while the other low-crawled forward. I shot as many of the bastards as I could, but as the Cubans drew closer, I came to the inescapable conclusion that I had failed. Now that the Cubans and Russians had discovered us near the church, I would never be able to return and open the portal. To survive, we'd have to retreat. Sal, we need to go! He continued to suppress the enemy with machine gun fire. Go ahead without me, I'll buy you some time, then catch up later. I hesitated. Sal was an asshole of the highest order, but he was my asshole. And I wasn't going to let the Ruskies or Cubans capture and torture him. Not on my watch. He glanced down at me. What the fuck are you waiting for? Go! He fired another long burst. A metallic click followed. Out of machine gun ammo, Saul scrambled out of the hatch with his R1 rifle and combat rolled onto the ground. A hail of bullets whizzed over my head as the Cubans continued their assault. Sal's head exploded like a pumpkin, dousing me in blood and meat. I, I dropped my stomach and wiped off my face while I collected my thoughts. I grabbed Sal's camera and left his corpse to the Cubans and hyenas. Rounds whistled by as I retreated, using the tall grass and the folds in the earth to mask my escape. Before returning to Langley, I called in a favor from an old college buddy who owned a darkroom. While I developed Sal's film, I could see lines of force extending from the toroid in the emerging photos. As I examined the images, what I initially thought had been lines of force turned out to be something else entirely. The closest I could come to describing them 
would be ethereal tentacles coiled into a toroid. At various points, the tendrils reached out and attached themselves to the men and beasts we'd encountered at the old Portuguese church. These wispy tendrils also latched on to other things, entities that no words I could muster could adequately classify. Whatever presence occupied that church had laid claim to both the living and the dead. As the image on the last photo materialized, I was startled to see my own face. It was the last photo Sal had ever taken. As I looked closer, one of those tendrils had latched onto my back, a ghostly leech from some long-lost astral and non-Euclidean dimension. The tendrils extended from me toward a legion of forms lumbering in my wake, forever chained to me. Slowly, I began to recognize every one of their anguished faces. My test subjects from Project Manable. With the force of a Mack truck, I knew for certain they were waiting for me. Waiting for me to lead them again in agony. Slaves in hyperbolic space to a demented and twisted soul. Sal's mission had succeeded. His photo had expanded my perception, helping me realize I was the gateway all along. That was Sean Patrick Hazlitt's Mandible, is read by Matt Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep Podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Matt McFly. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world, with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we peel back the mask with more Tales to Terrify.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 